Uh, we're we're going to kick off this morning with hearing a personal testimony from Ty and Stephanie Petersburg, and uh, I'm going to invite them up front. And uh, really, the reason we do these these uh, topical series sometimes is because uh, there are just very real things that we each face in life, and um, there there are times and seasons where we just feel. Uh, Man, this would be really appropriate to dive into this specific topic, whether it's stuff going on in our midst. And um, it wasn't a coincidence, I think, that God would have you guys be the first to share and even the timing of you guys sharing. And so they're just going to share their story with us, what they've walked through the last few years or several years, and how God has met them in the process. And so let's give a little golf clap to Ty and Stephanie. We're switching sides this time. This is weird. We're switching sides. Yeah, come Hello. up, Tom. come up front. Come on. I'm going to trip over some junk. Sorry, Kyle. Where is that? Uh, Matt asked us to share a little bit of our story. I'm Ty, and this is Stephanie. And um, I guess to start, y'all should know it's not it's not really a story about us. It's it's God's grace through our story. Um. And I, I think I should probably say it's it's been a tough road, but I don't want anybody to think that we uh, don't acknowledge everyone has trials in life and tragedy. It's, it's, it's not a sad story in that respect. But Matt wanted it from the beginning, uh, as we're talking about a, a fear of fear of the future. So we'll, we'll begin there. Steph and I um, have that story that most folks you know they have in movies where you grow up together she was across the street from a while or for a little while when we were kids and um we are not related she was very clear to say that in the first service um but we've known each other since i was probably in third grade and and uh we're good kids for the most part not perfect not by any means but Sort of what you want your kids to do. We were involved in church, and we uh, went to school, and we were involved in ministries there. And for the most part, did the right things. And um, thought that we sort of set life up uh, to be blessed, and we have been. But a little differently. Uh, we got married early. I was 21, and she was 22. And um, as she is older than me. Let's just... <laughs> So, getting me off track here. Uh, so we did what most young folks did, and we took a few years just to enjoy life before we started having kids. And uh, in 2007, we got pregnant with our first little boy, Soren. And um, early on at that 20-week ultrasound, we went in, and, and things just weren't quite right in that ultrasound. And um, at the time, they called it something uh, like hydrocephalus. And as we continued on through that pregnancy... The diagnosis kept getting worse and worse, uh, but they didn't really know what was going on with Soren. And um, it came into September, again, ironically, and uh, September 21st, Soren was born in 2007. And um, they had a whole team of doctors ready for us because they didn't know what was happening. And uh, the amazing thing was the first few hours after he was born, everything was awesome. And um, the doctors thought, well, I guess they're normal. We're, we'll send them back to the to the regular people ward. And just as we were about to do that, Soren crashed. And so from there, sorry, that's the hard part. We, um, we went straight into the NICU from there. And we essentially lived in the hospital for the next many, many weeks. And um, 
the docs did all kinds of tests on him and, and could never really come up with a positive confirmation of what he had. Uh, and the reason being, at the end of it all, the, the doctor said, you're literally in uncharted waters. Um, they, had, they said that uh, they hadn't seen anything like this particular thing before. And if you fast forward a couple years, when they finally ran down the genetics, he was the fourth kid internationally diagnosed with his particular ailment. Um, at any rate, we, um, man, that was, it was hard. We, uh, we thought we'd done all the right things, and we spent time in the hospital, and we watched kids come and go out of the NICU knowing we wouldn't go home with ours. And um, at one point, the doctor started pushing us to do some of those end-of-life things. You know, maybe you don't give him oxygen. Maybe you don't resuscitate him. Maybe you don't do this, that, or the other. And we struggled and prayed hard through how that would go. And we, I remember one morning we were praying, Lord, we, we can't make this decision because we don't feel like we can be the ones responsible for pushing him. Um, and we had, we had it out with God. It was a pretty rough morning. And we walked over to the hospital um, and went in, and Soren had taken his oxygen off and stuck it on his forehead. And I said, what is this? And, and the docs and the nurse said, well, we don't know. He just did it. And so my immediate emotion was anger, and I went on a little rampage through the hospital and yelled at a lot of people and made my wife embarrassed, and it was totally inappropriate, and it was about an hour later, I went, oh my gosh, we prayed for this just this morning. Um, at any rate, we went about seven weeks with, with Soren in the hospital, and then we got home for a couple days uh, before we lost him. And through that, we, we thought, man, God, I, I, this sucks, but, you know, use it, um, do something with it. And about a year later, when I got a call from some of our friends, um, we were pregnant again with ours, and they were pregnant with some twins, and uh, they're just some of the dearest friends in our, our life. And, and I remember the road, uh, Brian called me, and he said, we're going to lose one of our twins. And I remember going, God, we said we'd do this, but not with them. I mean, are you crazy or what? Um, and so it just bound us together, and they ended up losing one twin and our kids are our great friends today, and we share that bond. Um, somewhere after that, I remember going, Whew, all right, well, we, did a, we did our life's tragedy. I guess we're done with that. Let's, let's crank on. And, and uh, we, we started having kids again. So we had Bowdoin, and, um, and then we had Lucas, our two little boys here in the back, who are going to behave, correct? <laughs> and... Um, it came around to September uh, in 2012 again, and, and Bowdoin started vomiting, and we couldn't really tell why. So um, I quit work during the day. I called Steph. She was down at Children's Hospital where she worked and got him in for a sick visit. And the, the doc said, let's, let's just do, uh, you know, rule out the worst-case scenario. And so they ran Bowdoin in for a CT scan and discovered a a mass on his brain at that point and admitted us immediately to the hospital. So neither one of us had clothes. We both stunk. We went straight into the hospital, and shortly thereafter, they did the first of two surgeries on Bowdoin to, remain, to, to remove a cancerous tumor in his brain. Uh, that followed with about seven weeks of radiation and then 48 weeks of chemotherapy. And I can remember during the radiation part, that's a real sensitive place for a little guy uh, wrestling with God. We had one option to do sort of an experimental treatment, and one was the standard treatment. And 
Uh, the experimental one, they didn't know what the outcome would be. They thought it could be good, but they weren't sure. And, and the standard treatment risked greater danger of longer-term late effects. And, um, and I can remember praying one of those handful of times where it was so intense. Um, God, what do we do with this decision for our, our child here? Um, what choice do we make? And it was kind of a crazy thing. I don't know if it was audible. Maybe, maybe it was. But it was very clear that God just said, trust me. And um, I think it was the next day or the day after the docs called and sort of took that decision out of our hands and said, we're going we're gonna to go this route. And let's just see where it goes. Um, at any rate, um, September 11th, so tomorrow would be the five-year anniversary of Bowdoin's diagnosis. And September 21st would be the, the 10th birthday for our first son, Soren. So I don't know why Matt chose the fear factor to talk about in the month of September, but it, it rings true with us. And uh, we're now four years removed from treatment with Bowdoin, and he's doing phenomenal. And in the midst of all of, all of that, we have Lucas as well. And uh, with um, our third one here, we're, we have that fear of the future and what's to come, but we're pretty darn sure we're going to be all right. But this is a subject that he's going to preach on today that we, we sort of we walk through on a, on a daily basis. So anyway, we're doing awesome right now. I just want to know, let you know that. So. Well, thank you just for your uh, willingness to share. And, uh, you know, our heart and our desire for, for this series is for all of us just to be as real and transparent about the challenges we all walk through in life because none of us are immune um, to, to really challenging brokenness and things happening to us. And so just thank you for your willingness to share. So um, I asked Stephanie and I prepared her for this because she likes to be prepared if you know her. Um, because I, I, I'm anxious. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Produces fear and anxiety of the future. And so I asked asked some specific questions that I just wanted her to kind of chime in on. And the first one is this, is how does fear of the future impact just your thoughts and actions maybe on a, just on a regular basis? What does that look like? Uh, I had told in the first service that when I read Matt's question that he emailed, my first thought was it impacts too much of my time. Like that was my initial inclination to, as a response, just... Fear of the future occupies way too much of my time. I spend too much time trying to prepare for the future, mitigate the future, plan for the future, manipulate the future um, because of fear. Not in joyful expectation, but more really just in how can I control it, how can I manipulate it um, so that I can secure health or I can secure security or I can secure comfort or I can make sure those things are guaranteed. Um I think not enough time spent um, just being present in all the gifts God has given now um, and really being thankful for the way God has carried us through in the past. I think that is probably the biggest way fear of the future impacts my life and our life. Awesome. Second question is, what is a recent example of when you've attempted to take control either of a person or a circumstance? So I got real specific in the first service. I can get real specific again. Because uh, I don't think they're here. Are they here? You guys can tell them I shared this story. Uh, so we are at Janner Forrester's birthday party <laughs> uh, last weekend. And uh, Janner and Silas, before we, Corey's going to laugh at this, before uh, we ate, had 
gathered a dead bunny and were carrying the dead bunny to the picnic area. And that occupied my thoughts for hours afterwards, like tularemia, plague from the prairie dog field. How did this rabbit die? What are we bringing to my house? What have my kids been exposed to? Um, And just the things that I can do, too much hand gelling, too much washing, too much uh, kind of manipulating how my kids are kids to try to prevent that kind of stuff. Uh, And I shared specifically, too, just this summer, because Bowden has this, like, space in his head, he is at a little higher risk for meningitis. And um, so whereas some people are like, I don't really want West Nile, that would be an inconvenience. West Nile is, like, this deep fear for me, and yet Bowden's been, like, pumped full of chemicals. And so it occupies way too much of my thoughts. Like, do I spray him with bug spray? Do we just let it happen? Like, these are things that are small and parts of life and they're magnified enormously in my mind and can occupy too much of my thoughts and can cause me to really control my kids in a way that's not normal childhood, uh, manipulate our environment in a way that's not trusting in God. Um, Would you add to that? That the tularemia fear went for days, not hours. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Could you add other things oh, to that? <laughs> Unity going in this process, so let's go on to the next question. Um, so um, what does the fight for faith in God's greatness and his sovereignty, his control, what, what does that look like for you? And has anything been particularly helpful as you face reality of, of these different fears? Uh you can chime in. I didn't let you last time. But I shared in the first service that um, the move here actually really rocked me. And I was frustrated by it um, because I'm like, we survived these big things. So why would a move shake me up so much? Um, but we were really well supported through everything we've been through with God and our small group and our church and some really precious friends. Um, and so the move was big. And the move and honestly the Nehemiah study um, really made me realize how I had forgotten some spiritual disciplines or some spiritual practices because you have to fight fear with truth um, and you have to fight fear with praise and I had neglected to continue to do that as sometimes we do we let down our guard when life's not hard but then fears took over almost bigger in normal life than when we were walking through these really hard things Um, And so really clinging to scriptural truth and truth about God has been vital. And I shared in the first service that God had given us specific. We had prayed after Soren was diagnosed. um, Because at first, as Ty said, at 20 weeks, it was just hydrocephalus and a club foot. And we thought we'd be dealing with the shunt and bringing a baby home. And then with every passing visit, it got worse and worse. But even at the time of delivery, we thought we were bringing this baby home with us. Um, but we had asked God during that time to just give us something to cling to. And God really gave us Psalm 139, that um, God was forming Soren. And, and Soren wasn't outside of God's control. It wasn't messed up. It was exactly the way God wanted it to be. He was exactly the way God wanted him to be. Um, no matter what the outcome was, God had a purpose and a plan for that. And to cling to scripture like that. For Bowdoin, it was James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there is no shifting shadow. 
Um, and I shared at the first service a couple Christmases ago, I wanted to get that for his wall. And I got so mad because I couldn't find it anywhere on Etsy or anywhere else. I could only find the first half of the verse. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Heavenly Lights. But the second part is the most important, that there is no shifting shadow. That God is the same. God was good when he gave us Bowdoin after everything was sown. And God was still good when Bowdoin got diagnosed with cancer. And we had to walk through that. And God is going to continue to be good in his life. Um, and with Lucas, it's a song. And if you know Lucas, that's really funny and very fitting for his personality. Uh, I felt like God gave us Come Thou Fount. Um, and I used to be worried that it was because the time I bind my wandering heart to any part. <laughs> uh, but I really wonder if it's the... Um, what's the part about Ebenezer? Now I'm blanking. Hitherto thine Ebenezer. Um, because I feel like... God is teaching us it's painful to look back, but when we look back, we have to go there to see how God was faithful and to mark those milestones of God's faithfulness. Um, and I think about how there's a biblical basis for that, and maybe it wasn't easy for the Israelites to go to the stones on the side of the, you know, the Jordan because it was scary to walk through it, but that was a marker of God's faithfulness. And if we don't go back and think about those times and we miss it, hearts where God was so good to us in the midst of all that um, and so faithful to us in the midst of all of that. Anything you want to share? You had a, a funny memory in the first one of you guys oh, all yes. being in the hospital yeah. bed. You want to share that one? Yeah. So just speaking about God's faithfulness um, and how God really can give a peace that surpasses understanding. Ty and I would both probably, we've shared in small group before, probably one of our favorite memories in parenting in all of parenting good times and bad times um was we have this memory of being together with bone in the hospital after his first surgery and all of us together in a hospital bed in this pediatric hospital bed not like those big ones they give you after you deliver babies and you have like the double family bed this is like a pediatric bed and all three of us are snuggled up in the one bed and he got the giggles and i can't remember why we're pretty sure want someone tooted <laughs> and we we're just laughing, and it was like sweet, pure family joy. And we were in the hospital, and our son had just had surgery for brain cancer, and God was faithful to give us this memory of just joy and peace. Um, it's different having your kids in here and sharing. I remember, too, very clearly with Lucas. Lucas was only eight months old when um, Bowden got diagnosed, and we'd had a son with a brain anomaly, as they like to say in the medical world, it was not compatible with life. And then our second son had brain cancer. So it leads a mama to believe what's coming down the pike. What's going on with my third little boy? What's up with his head? And I would pray over Lucas at night. And I have this very distinct memory of sitting in the rocking chair with Lucas and rocking him and praying over him. And my prayers would just so quickly digress to begging. Not like appropriately petitioning the Lord, but just begging um, for Lucas's health and Lucas's safety. And I remember God just interrupting me and being like, do you want him safe and healthy or do you want him mine? Do you want him to know me as Lord and know me as Savior? What is more important for him to be healthy or for him to know me? Um, and it's just a gift that God gives us those milestones to remember what's important, um, what's ultimate in this world. And when we slow down and go back and sit in those times that were scary, I think for the most part, 
we remember a lot more of God's faithfulness to us and the sweet things that he gave us. Certainly the fear, but a lot more of the other part too. Well, thank you guys again just for your vulnerability and sharing and being real with us. I know uh, this month in particular is not easy um, by any stretch of the imagination. So church family, I want to just pray for them. If you would join me in praying for them, um, and we'll continue to worship the Lord. But Father, I am so grateful for the Petersburgs. I'm so grateful that it is not a coincidence that they are here at this time in this place with us and that you have them here to bear testimony to your faithfulness through many trials and many tears. And I pray you continue to meet them, that your presence would bring them comfort and joy, that the truths of your word would bring their hearts rest and peace. And a true sense that you love them, you are for them, and you will walk with them through everything that they face in this life, good, bad, and neutral. So, God, we thank you for this family. We ask you to bless them and keep them close to yourself. And we ask you to show yourself to us now as we look to your word and what you have declared to be true about who you are. Would we all marvel at the greatness of our God. In Jesus' good name, amen. Um, I love just hearing their testimony because the reality is for, for all of us who, uh, even if you're here and you've entrusted your life and your salvation to Jesus Christ, you still face fear on a daily basis in one way, shape, or form. You may not diagnose it as fear, but uh, a lot of the roots of our actions and our thoughts are, are really seeped in fear. And uh, fear is just crippling. It can be crippling, it can be consuming, it can really be destructive in our relationships with other people and destructive in our relationship with God. And that's why we're taking these four weeks to really look at how we are able to face fear with faith and why we are examining the nature and character of God and the things that are eternally true about who God is no matter what circumstances happen in our lives. And the four broad categories of fear that we're going to look at are the fear of the future today, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, and the fear of pain and suffering. And really the goal of this time is to equip us with a simple and practical way to renew our mind in the truth of who God is, what he has said about himself, so that we can walk through life with courage in who God truly is is and fight the battles of fear that come our way. You see, many of us don't readily make the connection between our fear and our view of God, and yet they could not be more intimately connected. Here's the thing. Fear comes from having too small a view of God. You want to know where your fears are rooted? It's having too small a view of God. Namely, who he is, what he has done, what he's capable of doing, and what he has promised to do. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, we are told that the, the ultimate spiritual battle that we face is an attack, an assault on the character and nature of who God is. Listen to this, read along with me. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. The enemy's strategy is to get us to doubt who God is and to present us with an alternative reality. Throwing opinions at us about God's character that simply are not true. We see this from the very first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in paradise, they're in the garden. God has given them a, a paradise and provided all they need for life. And the serpent comes, and the first thing he does is question God's word and authority. Genesis 3, chapter, verse 1, he says, Did God really say, did God really say not to eat of that one tree? Is, is that really what God told you? He planted the seed of doubt into Eve's mind about what God actually said. And then he goes on to present her with an alternative reality. Verse 4 and 5. You will not surely die, the serpent says. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, God's holding out on you. He's keeping something from you. God is not trustworthy. He's afraid of you. He's, of the, he's afraid of the power you might get if you eat of that tree, Eve. The enemy's strategy is and has always been to get us to question who God is and present us with an alternative argument against God's nature that he is good and trustworthy. And if the enemy can get us to question the character and knowledge of God found in his word, then he gets a pretty strong grip on your life. It will have devastating and continual ramifications on your walk with God. However, if you fight to cling to the knowledge of God by faith that is revealed through his unchanging word, if you preach it to yourself, you will have power to destroy every spiritual stronghold that can have those devastating effects. This is why we're told so many times to speak the truth to ourselves about who God really is. To meditate on his word day and night. Because only the truth has the power to destroy lies. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Think about that. Do you ever find yourself listening to the voices in your head that elicit fear and start to rule your mind? How often are fears consuming you and just bombarding your thoughts, creating misery? I want to give you two examples of some some recent ways that this has impacted me. The thought process goes like this. Cheryl should have been home by now. I wonder if she's okay. What if, what if something happened to her? What if, what if she got in a car accident? What if she's gone? 
And what, what about, what about our child that I haven't met yet? Oh, oh, oh Lord, I don't think I could live without them. I can't be a single parent. I couldn't handle that. I'm having a hard enough time as it is as a parent. And if I'm not careful, I just keep walking down this road and my heart and my mind is consumed with fear and anxieties about things that haven't even happened. But what about this one? I have three daughters and another kid on the way. College, weddings, women are expensive. I mean, I know I get paid super well as a pastor, but how am I going to do this? How am I, I going to provide all these things for my kids? And so my mind starts to go down the trail. Well, how do I need to be investing the little extra money that I have? What do I need to be doing to create wealth so that I'm able to pay for these things? Because, man, heaven forbid my kids don't go to college or I don't have $25,000 for them to have an elaborate wedding. But this is what happens in our minds if we're listening to ourselves and just the random thoughts and stressors of life that pop into our head. And that's why we need a way to continue to change our minds and our hearts to focus on what God has said to be true and things that actually matter. We're going to be looking at Psalm 145 over the next four weeks. And if you got one of these, I'm going to ask you to pull it out and, and to have it in front of you. And, uh, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to read through this together in a moment. We haven't done that before, but we're going to, we're going to try something new today. And, uh, hopefully you're not fearful to read out loud and, uh, just face your fear, embrace it. But here's the thing is, is this passage reveals to us four attributes of God that speak directly into our fears. Every single one of them. We're going to see God's greatness proclaimed. We're going to see his glory proclaimed, his goodness proclaimed, and his graciousness proclaimed. And so if you will, stand with me. I only messed up reading once in the first service, so we'll see how I do the second service. But we are going to read out loud together and declare Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise your name forever. Oh, see, I already messed up. All right, keep going. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. 
All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. Amen. You can have a seat. It is good to declare truth to ourselves about God. And what I want us to walk away with today is this main idea found in your notes that God is great. So we don't have to be in control of the future. Because of God's greatness, because of his power, you and I don't have to be in control or try to control the future. And what I absolutely love about this psalm is the way that it begins. I will extol you. Who's the focus? God. It starts with worship. It starts with praise. It starts with acknowledgement that the only reason we have life and breath is because God gave it to us. That's a good starting point for your life. And I want to challenge us. Verse 2 says, I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. I want to challenge ourselves over this month to humble ourselves before God, to meditate on his word. And my challenge to you is to put this laminated eternal truth from God next to your nightstand. And every morning you wake up, pick this up and let this be the first thing that enters your mind for the day. That's going to be a challenge for a lot of you. It's going to be a challenge for me. Because if you're anything like me, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that goes to your head is a to-do list of all the things that are coming that day, right? Oh, I got to do this. I got to call this person. I got to work on this project. The things to do in life are endless, And if we're not careful, our minds and our hearts so quickly get consumed with what's coming instead of starting our day, quieting our souls, stilling ourselves before God and saying, God, this is the day you have made. I'm going to get done today what you want me to get done. And I'm going to be in tune with what you want for this day because you are great and you have control and you are working, you are present, you are active every day of life. And so I want this psalm to be one way we as a church renew our minds and the reality of who our God is. And what I love, the very first attribute the psalmist declares about God is his greatness. Verse 3, great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Okay, try to measure God's greatness with me for a moment as we meditate on God's power. So, The first words of scripture, in the beginning, God created. Okay, so the first act we know of God is that he created. And how did he create? Well, we learned that he spoke. God has the power to speak everything into existence. 
God said, let there be, and there was. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, people, exist. And it existed. Is that power? Anyone tried that, like, with their kids? And it doesn't work out that way? Right? Do this. No. Dang it. (laughs) Jesus spoke, and the raging sea was stilled. Jesus spoke, and diseases were healed. Jesus spoke, and the dead came back to life. Is that power? The Holy Spirit spoke through the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 hearts that were hardened and hated Jesus bowed the knee to worship and believe the good news of the gospel. And the church has spread like wildfire across this entire planet. Because God is speaking through his spirit, through his people. And dead human hearts are being made new and coming to life in the knowledge of God. Is that power? God's power is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. When we think of the things that God has done and is doing, we're left to say, great are you, Lord. You are great. I can't argue with your greatness. You are in control, God, but Then you bring us into reality. Bring us into the brokenness of this world. Bring us into the heartache and the pain and the serious problems that you and I are faced with every single day. And guess what? We're tempted to question that God's power. We're tempted to question that God's greatness. And here are three specific lies in your notes I think, are behind our fear of the future. Let's see if you resonate with any of these. The first one is this, is God is not in control. God is not in control. The second lie is, God is, he's out to get me. God is actually out to get me. And the third one is, God owes me a pleasant future. All three of these lies tempt us to take control of our world or consume us with anxiety about the future and things that haven't even happened yet. So let's examine each of these lies. Lies number one, God is not in control. When we look around at the world and we see hurricanes and fires and we see all the interpersonal issues from our relationships and from the circumstances of our lives, it's easy to think God can't be in control. How in the world can God be in control? This is chaotic. Everything around it is just, it's it's out of control. How can you tell me God is in control? I was meditating on this and just thinking about the reality that the origin of the chaos comes from the fact that we as human beings actually want to be God. Did you catch that back in the garden when uh, Adam and Eve and Eve was tempted to take the bait? It was, God knows you'll be like him. And ever since, humans have always struggled with wanting to play and be God. And think about the, the implications of that for a moment with me. You have billions of people on this planet who want to be God. 
Is that a problem? <laughs> different desires, different rules that we want to live by, different ways we want to do things, different rules we want to have to govern our own lives. And billions of us are doing that. I stopped and wondered, how are things not crazier than they actually are? How is this world just not completely falling apart? How is there any sense of order in the midst of fallen humanity? And my conclusion is nothing but the common grace of God to his creation. Any good in this world, any good in humanity is all credited to God. But our experience of this brokenness can still lead us to believe the lie that God is not in control. And when God is not in control, who's left to be in control? We are. How good a job are we doing of being in control of our lives? Anyone crushing it? I'm not. Lie number two, God is out to get me. Have the circumstances of your life ever made you think that God was legitimately out to get you? Have you ever felt like God was punishing you for your past sins, current failures, or future mistakes? Do you ever feel like God is just waiting for you to screw up so that he can discipline you and zap you and get you? Sounds kind of silly when you say it, but a lot of us functionally can view God this way. And this is a lie about who he is, an absolute wrong view of God. This lie, it makes us interpret the bad things that happen around us to God punishing us for not living up to his standard. Oh, what did I do wrong this time? Why is this bad stuff happening in my life? This picture of God is one that he is vindictive towards his children. It's one that we live in constant fear of God, unhealthy fear, because he is a dominating father who's just waiting for us to screw up. This lie tells us that God cares more about our performance than anything else. And it drives us to fear the future because we know we don't have what it takes to live according to his perfect standard. And therefore, when we fail, and we know we will, man, we're going to have... We're going to have hell to pay from God. It's just not a right view of God. That is a lie. Lie number three. God owes me a pleasant future. I would argue if you grew up in the church, this is probably the biggest lie you deal with. It was for me for a long time. And God uh, took some pretty significant measures in my life to show me this is simply not true. This is the lie that God exists to serve me. Think about that. When you, when you say God owes you anything, you're putting yourself at the center of the universe and the center of importance. And the line of thinking goes like this. If I do what God says is right, if I try to live by God's rules, then he owes me. So we say, okay, God, let, let's make a deal. I'll go to church. I'll be a good person. I'll tithe. I'll do everything that you've told me that I need to do. And God, you're going to give me a easy, blessed life, free from pain and free from suffering. God, I'll do my part if you do your part. 
This lie turns our relationship with God into a business contract with terms and conditions rather than a loving relationship built on trust and commitment. Have you ever viewed your relationship with God like a business contract? Have you ever, have you ever thought this way? Have you ever been tempted to say, God, I'm doing my part. You owe me a future that is good. Here's what this lie does is it distances us from God and it sets us up to be disappointed with God when the hard realities of life hit. Because if you think God owes you anything and he doesn't deliver, well now, who is this God you're believing in? Now all sorts of questions enter your mind and your heart about the nature of God. So when we don't, when we believe the lie that God is not great, He is not in control, we are tempted to either take control of our lives or to be consumed and immobilized by anxiety and worry about the future. But there is truth and a lot of it that combats these lies and we must realize that only truth contains a real spiritual power to demolish the strongholds of fear. Truth number one is this, is that God is great and he is in control. Whether you feel it or not, God is great and he is in control. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John gets this incredible vision into heaven and the end times and how this world ends. And when Jesus comes back and like the last epic battle between good and evil and how Jesus is victorious. And it's just awesome, right? It's a crazy kind of trippy story of John trying to explain these future things um, that he's never seen before. And he's trying to put put it into words. And he describes Jesus like this. He, he sees Jesus on his throne. He says, he had eyes like flames of fire. He had a voice like roaring waters. A sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's how John is attempting to describe what he sees when he is face to face with the risen, glorious Jesus Christ. And this is what John does. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. That's the response of being confronted with the true greatness of who God is. I'm unworthy. You are almighty. You are all powerful. I am not. And John falls prostrate on the ground. I should not be here. I should be dead. This power should consume me. And yet, look at what Jesus does in the rest of verse 17. He says, but he laid his hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is incredible. Jesus reaches down to touch his son on the back and to say, don't be afraid. I know you're overwhelmed at my greatness, but I'm the first and the last and you are mine. If you have anything at all that you should fear, it is me, for I truly am greater than everything else in all this existence and yet I'm the one telling you not to be afraid 
and over and over and over again throughout God's word, Old and New Testament. It's an anthem to God's people. Do not be afraid. I am great. I am in control. You have nothing to fear. I am with you even through the darkest of days. And you have nothing to fear. Even when we can't make sense of all the happenings in our world and our lives, God is still in control and Jesus is still on his throne. Truth number two, Jesus came to get me. God is not out to get us. He sent Jesus to get us. Did you hear that? God is not out to get you. He sent Jesus to get you and to set you free from all of your fears. John 3.16, familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you catch that? What is God's motive in sending his son so that you would not perish? So that death would lose its sting? So that death would not be the end of the story? And we're told in this verse that eternal life is a gift from God that can only be received by faith. Can only be received by trusting in what God has done through his son to forgive our sins and to set us free. And I just found this so interesting this week as I was meditating on this. That it's so interesting that it's our disbelief in God that originally caused our separation from him. And then it's our belief in him and what he has done that reunites us to him. Isn't that fascinating? It's like the opposite of what separated us from him now draws us back into relationship with him. This over and over again, we've, we've declared, God, I don't know, I can't trust you, I don't trust you, I don't trust you. And now we say, okay, I see what you've done through Jesus Christ, I trust you. And the scriptures declare that for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, You have the hopeful expectation of salvation that you are made right with God and you are set free from the power of sin and death. And here's how Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 puts it. Because God's children are human beings made with flesh and blood, the son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Did you catch that? Fear is slavery. It's bondage. And Jesus came to set us free. And to deal the death blow to death itself. So that we have nothing to fear Except a hopeful expectation that we get to be with our God for all time. That's hope, friends. That's real. That's truth. That matters when you're facing the fears and overcome with anxiety. We have to believe that God loves us. And we have to see that Jesus, through Jesus, there's no greater evidence of his love and there's no greater power than that of the risen Christ. 
First John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And if your faith is in Christ, he has taken the punishment your sin deserved. It's done. It was nailed to the cross. We don't have fear of facing God's wrath anymore, church. We have confidence in his love. God isn't out to get us. He sent his son to get us and to set us free from fear. Truth number three, the Holy Spirit will lead us in God's will. The Holy Spirit will lead us in God's will. And part of this is the reality that hardship will come. You see, God doesn't owe you and I anything. We, in fact, owe him everything. Every day, every breath you take is a gift from his hand. We owe him thanks. He doesn't owe us anything. He is our maker, our savior, our sustainer, and the source of all life. And when we trust in him for the salvation of our souls, he deposits his spirit within us. The very presence of God is within God's people. I don't think we live with that reality daily. The living God is inside of you if you have trusted Jesus Christ. And the scriptures say that he is our guide and he is our comforter. Those are two really important aspects to understand about the Holy Spirit. Because he will guide us on the path of truth. But he will also comfort us along the way through every trial and hardship. I don't know if you've realized this, but God's goals for your life are probably different than your goals. <laughs> Anyone been faced with that reality sometimes? God's goals for us are different. His will for us is ultimately that we would look more and more like Jesus so that we would reflect him to the world around us and to show that there is nothing of more value than knowing God. And the Bible calls this process of becoming more like God sanctification. Becoming more holy and more pure. Now sure, we are, we're, we're positionally sanctified through Christ. When God sees us, He sees the perfection of His Son. But we are progressively sanctified as we walk with Jesus. And as we think about this process of sanctification, it's just interesting to me that nature itself attests to this uh, phenomenon, this spiritual reality. So I have, a, I have a list of questions for you. And I want, what comes to your mind? How, how is gold refined? By fire. It's pleasant. How do trees remain healthy? Through pruning of dead branches. How do we get in physical shape? By exerting ourselves physically. Are any of these things like easy breezy, like no problem? Fire, pruning, running. Running might be the worst. <laughs> this is the reality of walking with God. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy. But the Spirit is going to lead us into God's 
will, which will ultimately use all of the circumstances of our lives to refine us and to realign us, to trust in God and to press in to Him. It is through the hardships and the trials that we are reminded that this world is so broken and in need of redemption. And it's through the hardships and trials that we realize that we cannot put our hope, our faith, and our trust in the things of this world. If you're looking to this world for hope, you will be let down. And life kind of keeps us in that reality. But the promises that we need to cling to, to remind ourselves of, even in the face of our fears, is that God ultimately is in control. His word is eternally true. And in the end, we will see how God truly does use all things for the good of those who love him. Even if it doesn't make sense, it's still true. And it's something we have to cling to. I'll just wrapping up here. Doubting God's greatness leads us to be consumed and ruled by fear, anxiety, and a desperate grasping for control. But trusting in God's greatness produces a surrender to God's will, produces a peace that surpasses understanding, and if we allow it, produces a prayerful dependence that pushes us deeper into our relationship with God and doesn't pull us away from God. Fears are real. Heartbreaking things do and will happen to every single person in this room, but God is great. His will is good and best, and the path of following him by faith is the only path of freedom. It is.